0: darkness my old friend I've come to talk with you again we are no strangers to darkness we settle down with it it becomes like an old friend when I was once a student very confused and hurt I entered some real darkness as I'm sure all of you have at one time or another And one day I came across a few lines in scripture that stunned me. And they said this, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Cal has chosen to say, not in Latin but in English, let there be light on its seal. Those are words from scripture and I say, too, let there be light. May it be so. Dr. Jeremy Bigby comes to us from the United Kingdom, where he teaches theology, authors books, and creates projects where theology can be creatively expressed through the arts. The project is called Theology Through the Arts. Jeremy is a musician as well as a theologian, a husband and father of four, and a very creative, imaginative person with a passion for the arts and for the person who is truth. And tonight, very creatively and wonderfully, he will lead us into the light. So, we can turn off our cell phones, And anything else that beeps, and get ready for what Jeremy is going to do magically with us tonight. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. I'd like to begin by saying something very important to me right at the beginning, up front. Whenever I speak to my colleagues in Cambridge and St. Andrews and elsewhere, at least whenever I've been speaking in recent weeks about coming here to the States or about my American friends, in the conversation always there is a surge of affection, especially in the wake of the unspeakably horrific events of September the 11th. So I come to you tonight, as it were, on the the surge, on the wave um, of affection generated by those conversations and also but my own love for this country and for the people of this country. We stand with you and I bring that message uh, from my friends and colleagues in the UK. Same things I'd like to say, big thank you to the team who has set all this material up. I'm extremely demanding about various things and, I, and I'm extremely grateful to Phil and to Carl and Bob and others. Uh, people have been very thoughtful to me over my time here in the little prayer room around the back where I was um, put to be quiet, Uh, someone very kindly put a hairbrush on the table, and I do appreciate that. And if you did do that, I'd like to see you afterwards. Very good. Also, especially good to be back in Berkeley. Happy memories of the last visit. But the overwhelming impression this time is of a kind of universal smell of coffee. When I woke up in the morning, first night in the hotel, just nothing but coffee could I smell. And when I'm on the streets, I had a strange dream last night. There was a kind of giant coffee percolator underneath the streets of Berkeley <laughs> just sending this aroma up. So, um, so that's, that's a kind of outsider's impression. You seem to be doing nothing but drinking uh, coffee. A lot of what I'm going to say tonight is through music, so we're going to begin with some music to start. unmistakably filled with the sense of an ending, even though I didn't let it run to the very end, by one of your most famous fellow Americans, saturated in charisma, Leonard Bernstein. Music which unashamedly taps into 50 years of Hollywood-esque endings, using techniques endlessly imitated from Ben-Hur to The Lion King. Steady crescendo, leaping fourths and fifths, major chords fanned out by multiple brass, and a giant gathering together there of all the main themes of a vast hour-long symphony. The sense of an ending. English majors will of course recognize that phrase. It was about 40 years ago now that the English-born critic Frank Kermode completed a book with that title, The Sense of an Ending. He pointed out that in a lot of narrative fiction, the ending gives the whole story a unity, gathering the strands together, resolving the discord and dissonance into what he calls a grand temporal consonance. So what otherwise are mere events, one darn thing after another, are seen to belong to a greater whole. And he thinks that answers to a deep need in us all, to believe there's a story to our lives, that what seems like a chaos of events very often can be connected, linked, but there's a point to it all which will be revealed in the end or ending, whatever that is. We need the sense of an ending, an ending that's going to make some sense of it all. Even more than literature, music lives with a sense of endings. Not just big ones, but little ones too. It operates in a kind of permanent sonic future tense, always pushing towards endings. At least the music we know best, called tonal music or Western tonal music. This kind of music first came to flower in around 1680 and has dominated the Western world since. Whether Mozart, Beethoven, symphonic, grunge, jungle, chamber, funk, rap, bebop, hip hop or trip hop, It'll be tonal and two of its strongest forces are tension and resolution. Remember what it's like at seven in the morning just for a minute or whenever you wake up and you're deep in a dream and suddenly the alarm goes off and your head explodes and you ram your hand down all over the bedside table shoving off your Simpsons key ring or Terry Pratchett novel or whatever and eventually you get your sleepy hand on the right button. Ah. Tension, resolution. One of the most basic patterns governing our lives. And if you're going to compose music in the Western tradition of the last 500 years or so, you need to know how to handle tension and resolution. One of the most basic types is called harmonic tension and resolution, summed up so. We hear this, and we want and expect that. Instead of Mozart, have you ever heard this? Even if he was asleep and three storeys up, he'd run all the way downstairs just to play that. (laughs) And a large part of the trick is in writing music, which handles well the dynamic space, as it were, between that, or chords like it, and that. Everything depends on how you resolve or end your tensions. Now, tensions and resolutions are many different types operating at many different levels. Harmonic tensions and resolutions are by no means the only type. You can have them in meter, rhythm, attack, timbre, and volume. But if me stick with harmonic tension and resolution just for the moment. attention, of course, assumes something before which it isn't a tension. An equilibrium before the tension comes along. You were asleep. That's the equilibrium. So the more full pattern really is equilibrium, tension, and resolution. Slight boom on this, Bob. Or we can just pull it down. Oh, what am I? Is that me? Are we all right, are we? Thanks. I thought probably better. Uh, equilibrium tension and resolution, or in slightly less pretentious and more homely language, home away and home again. Let's listen to a Van Morrison classic. Establish home. Shine light on me. Open up my eyes so I can sing. And then there's a British singer called Cliff. When sure. I look up, who also sings in the darkest night. To establish hope. And I know everything is gonna be all. Right. In deep confusion,
2: we're still home. In great despair. And when
1: I am lonely as I can be And I know that God shines on me from it. So it's time to reach point. out for him Reach out for him He'll be there He'll
2: be there Within, within your troubles Within your troubles You can share
1: Close the door, back in home. Yeah, he the lady. Says you can home, away, and home again. And that's a fairly straightforward example. The process can be very, very subtle, very stretched out. You go to one of the operatic dramas of Richard Wagner, for instance, you'll probably find yourself away from home for about four and a half hours. All the tensions, these tension resolutions, combine to give music this forward moving feel. It gives you a sense of the incompleteness of the present. It pulls you into a dynamic of desire, giving you an appetite for closure. In short, we sense ending. Even if you don't stay long enough to hear the ending, there's an overall sense that it's oriented towards a home, a resting place. Of course, you'll know you can find this pattern in many other places, in a vast amount of literature and drama, for instance, with a hundred permutations and variations. And there are big debates about how basic this is to the Western literary corpus, I'm sure you know all that. But in music, let's make a couple of things clear. First, we're not dealing with a circle. This is not circular time, in the sense of exact return and repetition. When you kill the alarm, you don't go back to sleep again, or at least that's the idea. You don't return to equilibrium. In music, even if the destination is a note for note repetition, it marks the culmination of a journey so it will feel different, hence the H, the capital H on the second home there. It's not so much like going round the block, it's more like finding a home at the end of the street, which is like your home, but only it's bigger and with much better furniture. It's like the home you left, only more so. So it's not circular. The second thing is, final endings come in weak and strong forms. In this piece, and in the majority of popular music, there's a sense of home, but the actual end of the song may not be a flag-waving climax, it might just fade out. In other music, there's not only a flag-waving climax, but a huge sense of battle beforehand, at least in a lot of it, as in Beethoven, for instance, and a great deal of 19th century music. But whether weak or strong, the sense of ending or destination pervades virtually all tonal music. And what's all this got to do with Christianity? The Christian Bible tells the story of the world from God's first let there be to the world recreated at the end of time. The Bible doesn't speak of a circle. It tells a story of hope directed to an ending. And it's a threefold story beginning with the equilibrium of the good earth and the Garden of Eden, when the first humans live in harmony with God and delight in each other. But tensions enter in. Humans rebel. They say no to God. So God gets to work on a resolution, beginning with a character called Abraham, climaxing in Jesus and finishing in what the last book of the Bible calls the new heaven and the new earth. And like the music, the final home isn't simply a return to how things were, but a universe remade. And just like the music, the big story has lots of smaller stories nested in it. Smaller tensions and resolutions nested in it. Jesus told one of them about a young man who told his father in effect to drop dead and he runs off into the far country and when he returns the father comes to meet him home, away and home again. So it's not surprising that tonal music has arisen in a predominantly Judaic Christian setting. We need to be very careful about saying too much about that because many other factors were involved as well in this kind of music. But it's hard to deny that the Jewish and Christian faith have had a part to play. To live in this story is to live with a sense of an ending. As the spiritual puts it, we're on our way to glory. But are we? What kind of a sense of ending or endings do we detect as we glance across the modern and postmodern landscape of our culture? the people you study with, or go to classes with, or have coffee with, is there any belief in an ending in Commode's rich sense, like the ending of a great novel in other words, when all the strands are gathered together and we see the sense of it all, a final fulfilment of my life, not just a cessation, but a fulfilment, a spectacular climax to world history, a glorious gathering together when the broken themes of cosmic story are at last pulled together. I'm sure you don't need me to tell you that belief in that kind of ending has become not only much rarer but deeply suspect today in many parts of the West. You might even say we're witnessing the ending of hope in certain kinds of ending. Talk of grand endings has fallen on hard times in the postmodern ethos, huge stories of the world leading to a glorious future, total accounts of the world from beginning to end, the big meta-narratives, big stories which used to give us hope, Marxism, Judaism, Christianity. These say the pundits are waning, especially in the West. An incredulity towards metanarratives, to use a bit of jargon, has been setting in. And perhaps especially now. I started preparing this earlier in the summer, and I couldn't have imagined back then what new and dark weight the word's sense of an ending" would have by now. After September the 11th, the air seems thick with a sense of ending. I don't mean a sense that the world's going to grind to a halt in another week or two. That's a minority view and a pretty shaky one, I think, considering that for thousands of years, every prediction that the world's going to stop in a fortnight has turned out to be wrong. No, I mean the ending of a certain kind of confidence A confidence that great endings are possible. A confidence that we could build a new and great age. That we were basically invulnerable through technology and could bring civilization to some kind of glorious climax. Or at least bring it much closer. That does seem to have been severely dented. Of course for a long time that confidence has been waning as the culture vultures tell us. It said one of the marks of contemporary European and North American society is a lack of shared vision of what the goal of human life is. Siegmund Bauman, great sociologist, one may say paradoxically that the postmodern idea of the good life is the lack of definition of the good life. What is our vision of the good life? What kind of society do we want? Some of you may know the writings of Alistair MacIntyre, only one of many moral and political philosophers who've been exposing the lack of any particular vision of the future, a lack of any shared sense of ending, anything more than merely vague platitudes about what we don't want. Even the war on which your country and mine are embarked does feel odd, not necessarily wrong, that's not what I mean, but odd, strange, because it's hard to know exactly what kind of world situation is actually achievable this way. I'm not saying it's wrong, I'm saying there's a strangeness about it, isn't there? And why this waning of confidence? Why this hesitancy about naming and claiming a great future? Well, for many, talk of grand endings and a future sounds like escapism. Many attack Christianity for that reason. They think that it's escapism, hoping in some world utterly beyond this world, heaven beyond the bright blue sky, And that's delusion, that's deception, so it's said, a way of avoiding our pain here and now. What Bruce Coburn calls the sweet fantasia of the safe home is just that, fantasia, fantasia, fantasy. And it won't bite in today's world for the man who's just lost half his company in the World Trade Center, escapism is the last thing he needs. Okay, so you say that's not authentic Christianity. No, quite right, but it's still very much around the rumour that that is Christianity, so we better face up to it. Even if we dump escapism though and stick to this world, talk of a grand future or ending is still going to have a rough ride. For many it sounds like naive optimism in human nature, captured in this icon of modernity, a worker on the Empire State Building in the 1930s. A belief that human beings are ascending to ever greater heights through rational, scientific, technological and economic advance. and The imperialist dream of spreading these advances worldwide to usher in a new world order. The progressivist vision of a vast upward crescendo of human improvement towards some blazing climax. As I needn't tell you, for millions it's a vision that's brought a trail of destruction. Yes, thank God for medical advances, telecommunications, the microchip revolution and all other things, uh, millions of other things as well. I was going to say like coffee machines. But not, but thank God we say for those things of course, but not for the weapons of horrific destruction, mass starvation, ecological devastation which these very advances so often bring in their wake. The philosopher Immanuel Kant tells the story of a man who goes to see his doctor and each time he goes he's feeling worse and worse and the doctor keeps saying you're actually getting better and better. He's he's half dead and he keeps going and the doctor says, well you may think you're getting worse, actually you're getting better and better the whole time. Eventually he can hardly walk and he crawls in under the door and the doctor says to him, how are you feeling today? And he says, I'm dying of improvement. (laughs) The five year old chokes on the air she breathes in Manila. Dying of improvement. Not only naive optimism in human nature, For many, talk of grand futures masks oppression. Behind the rhetoric of grand endings, the postmodern sniffs manipulative power, a desire to dominate. Nietzsche taught us long ago to be wary of people who hold out long-term hope because very often they're trying to exploit you. The much-vaunted hermeneutics of suspicion has made us wary of talk, of hoping in climactic endings. The painter Max Beckman Paints this 1918 1919 roundabout, paints this in the wake of the abortive left wing risings in Germany, he knew well. So many poured hopes into these utopian stirrings, but the upshot was barbaric violence. As the cynic will tell us, hopeful attempts to create the new heaven often end up with the old hell. Think of the way so called Western development has violated other cultures. Think of that word resolution I used earlier. How closely it echoes the ominous phrase, final solution from the death camps of the forties. And think, and here I'm going to get very near the bone, think of the way Christians have often used their story of hope as a dehumanizing weapon against women, Hispanics, Maoris, African-Americans, and so the list could go on. Talk of happy endings is most likely, particularly the Marxist, kind of Marxist angle, um, Would we'll come at this. Talk of happy endings is most likely to be a kind of political aspirin handed out by those in power to keep the downtrodden quiet and to give us, the rest of us an excuse to do nothing to help them. Hang on for heaven, the slave owners sung to their slaves as they pulverize the life out of them. Escapism, naive optimism, oppression. The postmodernist suspects them all behind talk of grand endings. And that suspicion has sometimes been played out in the world of music. Unconsciously very often, or half-consciously, or obliquely, and sometimes very consciously. As we turn to music, it's worth keeping in mind that to have a sense of a destination typically brings you other things, two other things in particular, a sense of direction, a sense of orientation, that although there will be twists and turns, there will be an overall sense of heading or travelling somewhere and a sense of continuity. A sense that events can be related, whatever the cracks and breaks, there's going to be some kind of continuity at some level. And very often with those also some sense of where we've come from, origin, which often be closely related to where we think we're going. Some musicians have found themselves questioning all of these, not just verbally, but musically. To start with the most obvious, many musicians have been asking Why resolve? Let's listen to... uh, Van Morrison again. Let's try an experiment. Why resolve? What? Yeah, but don't. No. Just stay there. It's a question many musicians have been asking. Why resolve? And what have we loosened that sense of origin as well? Many have experimented with that through the 19th century. Beethoven himself, in many ways the archetypal heroic musician, the musical modernist self in so many ways, in his late works at the start of the 19th century, doing a kind of self-critique on his own image. Around the same time, Frederick Chopin writes 50-odd mazurkas very odd, some of them are too. Here's how one of them starts. What, what's that? I mean, where are we? Where's home? It could be F major, it could be e, uh, A minor, it could be E minor, it could be D minor. Let's not too critical. Let's carry on, because the melody coming. Ah. Well, obviously this is going to resolve at home now. Oh boy, I can feel the ground sliding underneath me. Where's home? Surely it's
2: here now. It
1: Surely here. Oh, we're sliding again. We're sliding. Here it is and there's home. Took 16 bars or so to get there, but we made it in the end. And then the rest of the piece is basically in A minor and then a very nice episode in A major. And we think, oh, well, that's it. And that's home and all the rest of it. And how does it end? Of course, we're going to end at home. So we think... Who knows? Both very ambiguous. Some of you will know the work of Roger Lundin and his fascination with the theme of orphan in 19th century literature, which he takes as symbolic of the orphaned self of the modern age without origin or home. The Frenchman Claude Debussy was well versed in these experiments. Also a great fan of Chopin, edited the Chopin studies, a uh, collection of studies, and knew that those works inside out. And soon after the ending of the 19th century, another ending, in the last of his preludes for piano, Feu d'Artifis, fireworks, we hear this. Uh. Now what should that do? That should resolve onto that. That at all. You get another chord immediately afterwards that also should resolve. Now what should that do? That should resolve onto Right?
2: But he's not gonna do that. Another one And another one.
1: Nope. And so on colors enjoyed for their own sake, not pressed into the service of going from somewhere to somewhere. The froms and the tos are local, modest, unpretentious. The result is both delectable and disturbing, nudging this home and that, but never settling down for a long-term relationship, shifting from one temporary condo to another, one deferral of closure sliding into another, settling at the end of that piece, but only just. Origin, destination, direction even now loosening, the old modernist stability is dispersing as quickly as the after image of a firework. In another place, place, the process is extended yet further. Vienna, 1908, a time when so much was being questioned, so much unsettled, a culture rife with rumours of endings. Arnold Schoenberg in his thirties, this is a self-portrait He experiments with melodies deprived of the gravity of a home key. In his second string quartet, he uses a text with the words Ich fühle Luft von anderen Planeten. I feel air from another planet. His scores for this time evoke a sense of being rather than becoming, suppressing direction and goal orientation. In the fifth of his orchestral pieces, we're given a complex network of musical lines, but with little to root the sound in origins or map them towards a destination. he tightens that up with pieces very carefully constructed out of a line of notes from the 12 notes of the chromatic scale, but arranged in such a way that no one note predominates. No one center serves as an orientation point. No one center serves as home. Sorry. Carefully organized, some of the most carefully organized music ever written. Fiercely calculated to be permanently away. I feel air from another planet. Now, if you're a music major or ex music major, you'll know I'm simplifying drastically and you'll be blushing. I'm not claiming for a moment that these composers were drowning in pessimism or had no sense of hope, anything but, if you read Schoenberg, nor that this illustrates some steady decline of music into some dark cul de sac of chaos anything but. Oversimplifications like that are crass as well as naive. But I think what we can say is that these sensitive artists were caught up in turbulent cultural currents which often unconsciously uh, played out a malaise about endings, a malaise ingrained in much of the fabric of European culture. And the playing out was done in the medium of musical sound. And what of us today? As I've hinted already, in some circles this suspicion or unease about home with a capital H would seem to be stronger than ever. It's not surprising if a welter of literature has flooded out on the effects on the human self. and Most of that literature is a variation on the same theme. Say goodbye, it is said, to the so-called modernist self, the individual self striving out optimistically to create a better future on his or her own. The heroic, self confident, self reliant agent who's going to make a difference and carve out the New Jerusalem. Say hello to the postmodern self who strolls the streets of postmodernity in many guises. The commentators speak of the disoriented self. Without a sense of an ending or a shared, stable set of coordinates in the future, it's not surprising if a great deal will destabilize. The philosopher of the ancient world, Heraclitus, sketched what it was to speak of all things in flux, Panta Rai, all in flux, and contemporary forms are not hard to find. From the soundtrack of Peter Gabriel's show for the London Millennium, Millennium Dome, although written two years ago, his words suddenly chillingly apt in a way I couldn't have predicted when I first decided to use them. I looked up at the tallest building, felt it falling down, I could feel my balance shifting, Everything was moving around, these streets so fixed and solid, ah, shimmering haze, and everything that I relied on disappeared. Downside up, upside down, take my weight from the ground, falling deep in the sky, and all the family looks so strange. The only constant I'm sure of is this accelerating rate of change. colleague of mine at Cambridge speaks of multiple overwhelming being pulled in a multitude of directions by the bewildering variety of options on offer. With a plethora of TV channels to hop around, thousands of brands of goods, trillions of websites, remember the Verbs chart-topping album Urban Hymns with its multiple recycling of styles and the line from Bittersweet Symphony, I'm a million different people from one day to the next. Commentators also speak of the plastic self. Without a sense of shared ending, the self becomes a product of roles and performances imposed by society and its own inner drives and conflicts. We learn to change very quickly, slip in and out of roles, reshape ourselves. Kiss goodbye to Jeremy Begby as a self-integrating rational agent with a central core that makes me, me, and endures through time. No. Jeremy Begbie is the name given to the de-centred self, shaped by the multiple forces of culture. Like the ancient figure of Greek mythology, Proteus, who changed his shape in a flash, significantly in order to avoid telling the future. And yet another image, the fragmented self, without a sense of ending, very often continuity will begin to dissipate. Past, present and future will tend to fracture Bauman, who I mentioned earlier, writes a book a number of years ago about our times called Life in Fragments, about a culture where jobs for life have all but disappeared, when professions have the habit of appearing from nowhere and disappearing without notice. The ethos of the weekend fling, fleeting and flirting, where we can only handle a night or a day at a time, only micro-hopes, micro-endings, not mega-endings. And I suppose it's not surprising if many of us will retreat into the present, in these circumstances the so-called isolated moment the moment of the quick soundbite the photo opportunity the moment of the flickering image on the screen of course all this can be huge fun people will say quite right it can the gentle fun of multiple ironies the fun of hopping from one sexual experience to another one dot com to another living like there's no tomorrow like there's no end why worry if it's a huge denial a way of avoiding the ultimately unavoidable tough questions about ourselves or the piercing eyes of the starving child in Mozambique or the bewildered refugee on the border of Pakistan. Turn the music up louder, we don't want it to spoil our day. From a band called The Beautiful South, the world is turning Disney and there's nothing you can do. You're trying to walk like giants but you're wearing Pluto shoes. And the answers fall easier from the barrel of a gun than it does from the lips of the beautiful and the dumb. The world won't end in darkness. It'll end in family fun with Coca Cola clouds behind a Big Mac sun. <laughs> and to these, I add two more images of the postmodern self. These, these coalesce. Things are not simple. There's no one self, obviously. That's half the point. Many, the multiple images, an endless argument about which is dominant and all the rest of it. Not worth the argument. It's best just to or splatter out the options. The feverish self second last one. A fascinating example here in music is a way of of pulling this together from your own country. Steve Reich. could be taken as a clever wordplay, not intention, tension resolution, and without intention or direction. He tells us, I quote, when I first played a tape version of that section to my publisher, I remember turning to him and saying, out on the plane, running like mad, and that's the image, it's as if you're in the desert and running as fast as you can, but running from nowhere to nowhere. Feverish activity without direction. Not a bad sonic image of much in our own culture. Read Zygmunt Bauman's fascinating discussion of the desert as a symbol of the postmodern ethos. Without fixed coordinates, when you can't measure your progress or your direction because footprints get so easily and quickly blown away. Think how lost travelers in a desert, you know, they tend to go round and round in circles. But you daren't stay still or you'll die. Feverish activity without direction. Of course, I'm not saying Reich would have had all that in mind, but the music can act as a remarkable sonic parable nonetheless. And a final category, I add myself, the timeless self. In the midst of disorientation, plasticity, fragmentation and feverishness, one option is simply to pull out, to disengage into a supposedly timeless world. And in the last 10 years or so, we've seen an explosion of the popularity of music, which in effect offers something like this, from chill-out music, to Spanish monks, to the prayer cycle, to carefully processed Hildegard of Bingen. The English composer, John Tavener, very much alive, looking a bit like a cross between Liberace and the Archbishop of Canterbury, as someone once said. <laughs> Highly popular among a wide range of listeners, some in the late 70s, captivated, so, sorry, since the late 70s, captivated by a vision of God and eternity, but an eternity completely beyond this world. There can be little hope within this world for this world. So Taverner frequently uses symmetrical structures, structures which don't lead to anything, as it were, but which deliberately fold back on themselves. Here's just a glimpse of that. This is the piece at the end of the Diana funeral service. For a minute, I happen to like the music. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm not certainly not saying it represents or this or similar music represents bad music or there's no place for it, or all these composers would subscribe to what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I think part of its popularity, perhaps a large part of its popularity, is because it's it's, it's being it's certainly being sold and marketed in a culture deeply anxious about hoping for any kind of rich ending or endings for this world or for us. I suppose with all this in mind and in these troubled post-September the 11th days it's not surprising if thousands upon thousands have been flooding into churches in my country as well as yours and indeed onto streets and squares to have services or quasi-services. I gather there were thousands in a square not far from here In Berkeley. Because with such a sense of ending, it's only natural that people should reach for the possibility that there is something or someone which might not end. Of course to many that will just seem like good old-time escapism, clinging at false straws. But suppose, suppose, just suppose, that the God they speak about in those churches and squares had actually created this world and you and me with an end in mind. And suppose that this same God wanted us in on the end and wanted to give us a sense of that ending now. And suppose in order to get our attention, he met us at our lowest point when our attempts to make grand endings fail horrifically. I want to hear a reading now, short reading from Mark's Gospel. Thank you. This
3: reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, beginning at the 33rd verse. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the seventh hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means... My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And one ran, filling a sponge full of vinegar. He put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that he thus breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Word of the Lord.
1: Here, God meets us at our lowest point. Not not at the summit of our ambition, but here at the point where all our attempts to create the new world All our purely human attempts to usher in the new age, all our attempts to resolve our problems, have become murderous and destructive. Here, God becomes the victim of our naive optimism. He becomes the victim of oppression, religious oppression. He was crucified by a religion which, glorious as it was, had by this time become distorted by purely human hopes. And for many, it had become cruelly oppressive political oppression. He was crucified by the Roman Empire, which, glorious as it was, had at this time become distorted by purely human hopes and for many had become viciously oppressive. He is disoriented. Indeed, his very identity seems to be on the line. My God, my God, where are you? His past, present and future feel as if they're fragmenting. He questions, indeed, his own past and present and future. He is torn in many directions by disciples, crowds, politicians, religious leaders. But he doesn't pull out. He hangs on to the bitter end, taking it all, absorbing it all. A crucifixion by the Brazilian sculptor Guido Rocha, who was tortured mercilessly in jail. His hope stretched to the limits. Would it be possible to hear something of of this in music? Nothing I've ever heard or found comes quite as close to this piece by a pupil of Schoenberg, Anton Webern. It's a funeral march written after the death of his mother. 1909. At this stage, Webern acute with a sense of endings. The ending of the great stream of Germanic musical culture in which he had been reared. The piece begins with about two minutes of murmurings on percussion, slow and low-beating gongs, barely audible. And then in the last minute, which I'll play now, the sound erupts violently from below and eventually disintegrates into silence. is the reality hovering over everything I've been saying the ending of all endings the reality which threatens every hope in a rich ending the reality which makes us hesitant about hoping for anything too strongly but this is how God gets our attention he meets us here where human false hopes reach their abyss where all purely human hopes have died. But from here also a fresh kind of hope emerges. Three days pass and the followers of Jesus find themselves with a new kind of hope in a new kind of ending. Rumors of an empty tomb And then the man himself, nail marks in his side and hands. Alive, newly alive, more alive than before. What kind of ending can they now look forward to? simply called Amen the raising of Jesus from the dead God's great Amen to Jesus to everything that's happened in him in the raising of Jesus God says to us in effect you can trust this person and he will give you a new sense of an ending an ending for this world and for each of us unimaginably greater than anything you could have dreamt of before Here's an ending we don't create, but which God gives. And with this new kind of ending, God's ending, a new kind of self emerges, a new kind of human being. Not the modernist self heading optimistically for an end he or she tries to build, not the postmodernist self destabilized and trying not to think about endings at all, but what I'm going to call the musical self. The self I'm going to try to describe largely through music. I do this slightly tongue-in-cheek because I'm not saying if you're not musical you haven't got a hope of getting to heaven, although we all know there's a lot of music in heaven. And of course different types of music tell different kinds of story about the self. Okay. Nevertheless, music is incredibly useful to see what it means for us to live with a sense of God's ending. God's ending. Let's hear from Paul in Romans 8 first of all, if we could. Thank you.
4: I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning and travail together until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait for adoptions as sons, for the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, For who hopes what one sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we'll wait for it with patience.
1: Thank you very much. What is the destination in that passage? What is God's great ending? Home with a capital H. Not, mercifully, some completely separate place beyond the sky when we die. No, says Paul here, it's this world remade. This world. That's what the raising of Jesus tells us it's a hope for this world renewed not the invisible timeless world of plato not the hazy noumenal world of immanuel kant not some fairy tale world beyond the bright blue sky but this world which god entered in jesus to remake this world liberated from the things which devastated it finally judged freed from evil purged from pain this world with a thousand dimensions added. This world bursting with fresh color and cadences, new rhythm and riffs in a wild, ecstatic, endlessly expanding dance. The Indonesian artist, Iwan Darsani, paints the countryside of his own beloved island of Bali. He paints the fertility of that lush place he knows so well. But of course, he knows that even Bali doesn't look that good. It's exaggerated. A portrait of heaven and earth promised by God. The new heaven and the new earth promised by God. It evokes a scene from the last book of the Bible. Perpetual streams flowing from God's throne nourishing the mango tree on the bank. The rich life of the multidimensional new world overflowing, nourishing, endlessly abundant. Home with a capital, uppercase H. So this world won't be like arriving at a giant rock concert in a foreign country. It will be like finding that you can play the guitar without anyone being embarrassed. That's a good definition of heaven. That the only three chords you know generate an entire dance. A crazy Irish dance, as it were, that can't stop. And at the center of the dance will be the welcoming reality of Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, leading the celebration of his people, who find that they can at last be truly human. Because as Paul says here, they're adopted, adopted into his family. Not dehumanized, but rehumanized. That's the hope for those who trust in him. Not another world, but this world, your world, you made new. Second, living with a sense of God ending, seven things on this. First, sorry, I've had the first. Second, living with a sense of God's ending means tasting the ending now. In most stories, the ending comes at the end. Do you think, is that the best he can do? And he's meant to be from Cambridge as well. But just bear it in mind. The ending comes at the end. The gathering together comes at the temporal end of the story. But just suppose for a moment that the ending got injected into the middle of the story. What you would get is a foretaste of the ending, as it were, ahead of time. The Apostle Paul believes that in the raising of Jesus, the final resolution has come early. Early. When Jesus was raised from the dead, that's a preview of the new world we can head for. The great resurrection they expected at the end of time has happened in Jesus, so Easter is a preview of the end. G.K. Chesterton, on the third day, they found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth. But it gets better than that, as Paul is saying, this risen Jesus sends his spirit so you can start to taste and enjoy that new world here and now. You can, as it were, get in on the act here and now. That's the role of the Holy Spirit, a foretaste of the end. Some of you may know Mozart's Jupiter Symphony. In the third movement, there's an intriguing example of what Jonathan Kramer has called multiply-directed linear time. It's the most ghastly phrase. But never mind about that for the moment. Forget the jargon, hear the music. The third movement starts like this. Sorry, it doesn't start like, no, it starts like this. And so on. You probably recognise that. And a little bit further down the line, in the middle of the movement, we get this. And then this. And what's that? Well, that's an ending, isn't it? I mean, that's a universally recognisable gesture of closure. An ending in Western music. And if it wasn't for the suddenly reduced orchestration, you'd think all he was doing was putting us a kind of period or full stop on what you've just heard. Wait, what's this? Wait a minute. This, then, has turned out to be... The first phrase of a new eight-measure phrase. So which was it? Was it an ending or a beginning? And the answer is both. Mozart is playing on the ambiguity between closure and gesture and opening process. An ending has come too soon and marks a new beginning. The raising of the Jesus from the dead was seen by the first Christians as an ending come early. But it marks... A fresh start for the world. A fresh phase in God's dealing with the world. Or should I say, a fresh phrase. But needn't stop there. That little closing gesture, which let's face it, isn't the most promising melody in the world, is it? You're not going to go home tonight and sort of sing it in the shower, are you? There's not a lot you could do with that, you would think. But then, you're not Mozart. Here he goes. There it is. Now upside down right way up again and, sequence. and back to the beginning or is it an ending an ending then becomes the material out of which he spins a whole set of developments Christ was raised from the dead yes but now the Holy Spirit will weave all sorts of new developments in your life out of that great ending come too soon Living with a sense of God's ending doesn't mean standing in the present and peering optimistically into the future. It's about getting a million foretastes of the future symphony of eternity right now. A couple of years ago I was preaching in a black South African township. In the morning I preached there I was told just before preaching that a house around the corner from the church had just been burnt to the ground because the man who lived there was a suspect thief. A week before that, a tornado had just cut through the township, ripping apart 50 homes, five dead. And then I was told that the very night before, a gang hounded down a 14-year-old, a 14-year-old in the Sunday school and stabbed him to death. And the pastor began his opening prayer, Lord, you are creator and sovereign, but why did the wind come like a snake and tear our roofs off? Why did a mob sh- cut short the life of one of our own children when he had everything to live for over and over again Lord we are in the midst of death and then they sang very quietly and then louder and they sang and they sang and they sang it's a foretaste of the end Christian hope isn't looking around at the state of things now and trying to imagine where it's all going. It's not about trying to calculate the future from the present. It means breathing now the fresh air of the future, tasting the spices and sipping the wine of the feast to come. And those people in that church sensed it that day, even in the midst of all that. And so we can say, third. Living with a sense of God's ending means no escapism. The West Angeles Church of God in Christ in Los Angeles, not far from the scene of the riots a few years back. You remember that? I go back there every time in LA because they remind me that hopeful praise can intertwine with community renewal, the education of the disadvantaged, legal aid for the downtrodden, a fight for better housing. It reminds me that authentic hope doesn't drive one away from the world, but back into the world, burning with pain. Hope for an ending has nothing to do with retreating from the world. Paul's vision there that we heard in Romans 8 is of Christians in the world for the world. Christians in the midst of a groaning creation and indeed groaning themselves. In the midst of a groaning creation for the sake of a groaning creation to bring about and see foretastes of the end. Sentimental escapism has no place in Christianity. Again, words from that same Verve album I quoted earlier. Amazing words. I need to hear some sounds of hope which recognize the pain in me. I need to hear some sounds of hope that recognize the pain in me. If I put it this to my students sometimes, hope digs deep. It doesn't just fly over the surface of life. It digs deep. Do you see what what I'm getting at? Of course there's sometimes when that kind of transformation seems very, very hard and almost impossible so we need to say fourth, living with a sense of God's ending often means hearing between the notes a remarkable CD has just appeared I haven't played this to anybody yet so you're the first people who have ever played this to, I hope also the first time you've heard this, quite extraordinary it includes the playing of one of the most famous pieces ever written for solo violin the spectacular Chaconne in D minor by J.S. Bach, I have a special soft spot for Bach as he's fortunate enough to have the same initials as me <laughs> now German. a German professor of music has shown that intertwined with the notes of this chaconne are a number of chorales or hymn tunes that Bach almost certainly had in mind when he was composing the chaconne. You don't hear these melodies, but she shows they're there, as it were, between the notes. In fact, he's found out that the chorales, what chorales, these hymn tunes, were all related to death and resurrection, and that he was writing this piece in the wake of his first wife's sudden and tragic death. Now, a group of singers called the Hilliard Ensemble are paired up with a violinist, and very gently, they sing these chorale tunes alongside the violin part. The result is, we're made to hear between the notes. And somehow, the violin part then makes so much more sense. myself in in Christian things until I was about the age of 19. And one of my biggest fears on becoming a Christian was, as it were, all my interests, and particularly music, would suddenly be pushed to one side and life would become an awful lot less interesting. Or all the things I was interested in before would, as it were, turn from colour to black and white. Do you know what I mean? That was my big fear. I can honestly say I found The opposite. Music now is far more interesting because now I can hear between the notes. I can begin to ask, How does God relate to this? What might God be doing in and through this music? Or how might, why did God allow this kind of music to be written? And what are its powers? I hear much more. And I want to say to you, if you're a botanist or a medic, or economist, or even a mathematician. Even, not my favorite subject. The skill is to hear between the notes as to how God is relating to this or what he might be doing in and through this or what he might be trying to tell us about his world. Hearing between the notes. And when, you, when is it where you bring them together, you see you hear so much more And the result, the glorious result, is a foretaste of the end when God will bring all things together. Even maths. Even maths. Fifth, living with a sense of God's ending means living with delay and silence. So I'm pushing the point even more strongly now. In Paul's words from that reading, Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Delay is part of the package. Now music has a great deal to offer here. As I said earlier, one of the critical skills in writing music is negotiating the space between sounds like that and that. And a great deal of musicology has studied the ways in which expectations are set up But endings are endlessly deferred. Well, not endlessly, but certainly extended, deferred, through a whole lot of devices, like digressions, pauses, extensions, and so forth. They call it delayed gratification. Take that basic tension and resolution. I could just do that. Or I could do... Organists get used to doing that sort of thing when the minister doesn't turn up in time to preach a sermon, okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, here's another example. Beloved of so many answering machines in Britain, including our own. If you ring my number, you'll get this. You Recognise that? Fure Lisa by Beethoven. It's the piece you play just before giving up the piano. Do you remember that? Now, what does he do with this? Later on, he does this. Now, if he was just an ordinary composer, at this point, he would just do... And then everything would be in eight measure sections, 8, 16, 32, 64, everything straightforward. But he's not an average composer, of course. Beethoven, even in a kid's piece, he can't resist doing something original. that extra measure just defers your gratification. Dare I say it, there's not a lot of deferred gratification in a lot of so-called Christian music. Christians need to recognize that much Christian art has been embarrassingly full of quick resolutions, reached with a mind-numbing predictability. (laughs) And what does that... And a very interesting thing happens with deferred gratification. It pulls you in. The delay becomes charged with hope because you are drawn in and drawn forward. Hope lives in the midst of delay. And that can happen even in silence. There's a fascinating moment in one of Alanis Morisette's songs. Alanis, bless her heart. (laughs) The conflicts, the craziness and the sound of pretenses falling all around, all around. And then the music stops. Do you know this song? And then suddenly, why are you so petrified of silence? Why are we so petrified of silence? Because we think nothing happens in silence. So our culture fills, of course, every silence with sound. Because we're petrified of silence because silence means void, it means emptiness, it means blank space. But music can tell us otherwise. Those silences are not empty. They're charged with hope because you remember what has happened, sense what will happen. There's more to music than meets the ear. Being a Christian means having a lot of in between times when nothing much seems to be happening, when it seems like God is on an extended vacation, when grace doesn't seem very amazing anymore. But into those mean times can come the memory that God has raised Jesus from the dead as a promise of what will be. So the in-between times gets charged with hope. For about 18 years now, probably 19 years now, a very close member of my family has been incarcerated in a maximum security psychiatric hospital. And when I visit him and I walk past the 30-foot barbed wire fencing and the security cameras, vacant faces against the bleak Scottish landscape. The words delay and patience take on a leaden weight. The in-between times can seem very long. But there are moments when even there I've come to know that the very silence can be charged with hope. Because what's into this very bleakness that God has come in Jesus Christ and out of this bleakness that he has raised him from the dead as a pledge that one day he will make sense will make something out of even this sixth living with a sense of God's ending means living, means hoping on many levels now I've talked about harmonic tension and resolution But there are deeper patterns of tension, resolution, and music on which the rest depend. And they're created by meter. Imagine you're living in a building where you're living on six stories simultaneously. That's what meter gets you doing. Let's explore just one piece. Mm by Chopin is constructed out of many, many layers. Not just layers of notes, but layers of beats, called meter. Meter is the pattern of beats underlying music. When you tap your feet to music, you're tapping to meter. When a conductor conducts an orchestra, they're conducting meter, or at least that's the idea. Meter, Meter mustn't be confused with rhythm. Rhythm happens over meter. And if you start dancing to the rhythm, you might find some problems, particularly, say, in other pieces of Chopin that I was trying earlier today. Meter's in my right hand with the tune. If you try dancing to the rhythm of that, you'll probably need hospitalization. The rhythm is over the meter, meter underneath, okay, got that? Now, meter, in this particular piece that we just heard, can actually be heard very clearly because it's articulated by the melody notes. And between each of those notes, you have lots of little notes. And those notes are not of the same strength of accents. Some lead away from the beat and some towards the next beat in a kind of wave, would you believe, of tension and resolution. Now the fun starts because these downbeats or these little endings are not of the same strength of accent either. The first of each four is strong and the fourth is weak and that creates another wave of tension and resolution making up a full measure or bar, as we call them in England, because we enjoy a drink after the concert. One, two, three four one two three, four one two, three four one Okay. And would you believe, you've guessed it, the downbeats of that wave are not of the same strength, and they make up yet another wave of tension and resolution, and so on and so on, until so one giant wave overarches over a whole piece. Musicians move in very high places. In early medieval polyphony, the ideal sound was not a fusion, but a mixture in which each voice stands out all the more clearly. And then the saxophonist comes along, the two styles of jazz and medieval music don't merge into one, they enhance each other, they become more fully themselves. And that is a new vision for what it means to be a human self today. The modernist self is the prima donna who can only ever sing solo and who drowns everybody out with fortissimo confidence and then collapses with exhaustion. The postmodernist self wonders whether her voice is anything more than the creation of her last singing teacher because she sung every part from bass to coloratura and still doesn't know who she is. The musical self lives with a sense of God's great finale when every voice is given a place and becomes more melodious, more real, more alive. I can just insert there a quick story that's come to mind. A number of years ago in Cambridge we we set up a big event um, involving, we call it Cambridge Praise, and basically it was just an event uh, in the university concert hall which uh, we managed to hire and they gave it to us free for some reason, we call that divine intervention or I don't know, slick talking or something. And so we got the entire university concert hall free and we had a big orchestra, uh, about uh, 60, 70 players in the orchestra and a, a large choir of 80 or 90 and we sang vast amount of different kinds of music, had lots of silence in the evening as well, place packed out, extraordinary things happened. But in the orchestra, to get 60 players who were all kind of committed to the Christian faith, that's actually quite quite hard so we had a few gaps, so to speak, to fill and I phoned some various people and I was very open, I said this is a Christian event kind of cross between a concert and a service if you're happy about doing that you know, okay, but I'm going to be right up front what kind of event it is and one of the people I rang was a 14 year old who was a very, very fine violinist who went on to to the university Um, and she sat in the second violins there and one of the pieces that we had in this evening was a huge, giant improvisation now, singers can improvise a bit, and we got the entire the vast congregation we got doing all sorts of things. We had a kind of 16 part round, and you know, they were kind of enjoying themselves and waving hankies and all that. They were having a great time. And, then, and a choir we kind of gave stuff to, but then we asked the orchestra to improvise. And now, if you've played in an orchestra, I mean, it's not the kind of thing you're really asked to do very much, because that's what you've got to play, and anything else is extremely risky. And Especially if you're a second violinist, you play exactly what's written in strict uniformity with everybody else. This, this woman, the, the 14 year old and indeed four others we had to ask all came to faith that night without any evangelistic address or any persuasion at all. And the key moment or the key piece for this girl I've never even met her but I've heard she's told this story over and over again. The key piece was this giant improvisation. When something happened or God as it were did something during this piece the way it was constructed. And I've often thought why this piece? And the reason of course I think anyhow is because a second violinist normally plays exactly what's written in strict uniformity with everybody else. Homogenized, as it were. And all the particularity and distinctiveness driven out of very often. That's why it can be pretty soul-destroying playing second violin. Or even first violin in a large group. There's about 16 normally. Maybe about that, no, not twice too many, about 10 second violins normally. For the first time in her musical life, in her musical life, she was told she could improvise. Sure, we gave a chord pattern, sure, there was a basic structure, but then it was up to her. She had to listen intensively to what was going on, so it was very, very corporate. But in that moment, she as it were, became more fully herself, musically, and ultimately in the spirit as well. The Holy Spirit is not out to homogenize people into one, but to make them more fully human in relation to other people. That's the Christian vision. Oh, if it were only like that in our churches. But that is church, so to speak. That is the body of Christ in action when that happens. Or again, I can't resist this. Listen again to that violinist. You remember the Bach piece I told? I'm going to ask you to listen to a section of it again, just for a minute. Don't listen to the voices. Listen to the violinists. And the violinists were okay, he's still playing what Bach is, has written. But somehow he seems to be enjoying it so much more. And the Bach comes alive. Because now he's, as it were, hearing between the notes. And hearing God's part in it. And becoming more fully himself. Just listen again to this. It's almost ecstatic what happens here. Like I've never heard the piece played in this way. Along the heading of improvisation. Errors can be remade. If we go back to this Chopin piece I played earlier, if you don't mind Chopin so quickly after, after Bach. JSB will forgive us, I hope. I was playing it earlier. It's actually quite a hard piece. And what usually happens is you don't get every note. And sometimes the notes you don't get can be very embarrassing. musicians have a very technical name for that, they call it a big mistake, okay? <laughs> and you're left with a number of options, at least not, yes, you're left with, I suppose, a number of options. You could sort of burst into tears and run out and throw a tantrum, but it's, it's not very British, so I wouldn't do that. And, not <clears throat> and you can't, of course, erase the mistake. That's what's interesting about music, it is so temporal, once it's happened It's happened. I mean, a piano like this has 88 keys on it, but it doesn't have a delete key. (laughs) The blunder has happened. It can't be undone. But an experienced player won't seize up. No, you learn to improvise the wrong note and make something of them. To use a technical term, you transform the wrong notes into what are called passing notes. Passing notes are notes which don't really fit, which, which can become fitting even beautiful for me the most breathtaking thing about being a Christian is that God can take your worst mistakes and turn them into his passing notes God's in the business of remaking us now. And in the end, even the worse can be taken up and remade if you trust him. And if you haven't heard that before, it's time you did. And there I end. And if you'll excuse a misuse of Eliot, in my end, I hope, will be your beginning. Thank you very much.